Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, this year is nearly over. Side note, if the year isn't nearly over for you too, one of us desperately needs some sort of psychological help. Listen past the closing bumper for my final goal update for 2023 and what we're looking at for 2024 by way of goals in the podcast. Over the last two years, we've looked at a large number of stories covering a wide range of topics and I think collectively wagged our heads in incredulity time after time repeatedly over and over again. How many times have we talked about something that we thought was so clear only to have it flipped on its head? If it's been once, well, it's been, well, at least once. I'm not going to go back and count. Ain't nobody got time for that. Uh, today is no different. Be prepared to have things' heads flipped on it. <clears throat> on today's episode, first we're going to learn how unhealthy and dangerous weight loss can be. Then we'll sing the praises of the totally scientifical theory of evolution. So grab your popcorn, candy, snack cakes, donuts, ice cream, chips, soda pop, and sticks of fried butter, and start to monkey around, just like your furry ancestors. Because for the last time in 2023, here we go. Well, it's nearly Christmas. What is the worst Christmas song of all time? No, it's not All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. That's actually the third worst. No, wrong again. It's A Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. is just horrible, but that's actually the second worst, believe it or not. The worst Christmas song of all time is I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas by Satan. I mean, Gayla Peavy. But that's not the point of this segment. Remember being a kid or... Five minutes ago, maybe, when you thought about how you just couldn't wait for Christmas to get here? I mean, obviously we're talking about opening your stocking or opening your piles of presents here, right? Maybe you had the tradition, or maybe you were just granted mercy by a parent and allowed to open one gift on Christmas Eve, if for nothing else but to shut you up until morning. Approximately 45% of the global population and about 90% of the United States celebrates Christmas. And for likely most of them, this is the first exposure to the concept of instant gratification. If you remember Veruca Salt from the 1971 Gene Wilder joint, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, she wanted everything right now. Hey daddy, I want an Oompa Loompa. I want you to get me an Oompa Loompa right away. All right, Veruca, all right, I'll get you one before the day is out. I want an Oompa Loompa now. That's who we are. I don't know if this is who we've always been, but I don't feel like it was as bad when I was growing up, and it was likely better for my parents and, and their parents, and I guess if the pattern holds, and you go back far enough, you reach a generation where they just didn't want anything ever, and they were just ever so happy. That's probably not exactly true, but you get the idea. So why are we so focused on instant gratification? Well, as a little background to our actual topic today, let's start with an article found on psychologytoday.com. Headline, 10 Reasons We Rush for Immediate Gratification. The byline to this article reads, quote, We're hardwired to want immediate payoffs, even if it's unwise. So I guess we're, uh, we're pretty much hosed as humanity if it's hardwired, right? Yeah, but for kicks, let's take a look at the top 10 here. Number one, a desire to avoid delay. 
It turns out this is evolution's fault. Quote, evolution has given people or other animals a strong desire for immediate rewards. In prehistoric human environments, the availability of food was uncertain. Like other animals, humans would survive and reproduce if they had a strong tendency to grab the smaller immediate reward and skip the larger but delayed reward. Okay, so like a quick snack and some light reproduction, right? Boom, evolution. Boom, instant gratification. Number two, uncertainty. Life is short. Poor health makes it worse. People are unreliable. So get it now while the getting's good. And number three, age. The older you get or the more time-related incidents you have, like funerals, you know, that you experience, the more you focus on the future rather than the now. So conversely, when you're younger and less experienced in life, you tend to jump at opportunities. And number four, imagination. Spending time with parents or advancing education or just maturing will allow you to envision the future more than just the immediate. For those that don't or can't visualize the future, they tend to go for the now. And number five, cognitive capacity. Lower levels of intelligence tend to make people more apt to make decisions for instant gratification rather than plan for the future, just by how the brain functions and processes things. And number six, poverty. Poverty tends to force people to live trying to survive moment by moment without the ability or the desire to try to look to the future. And number seven, impulsiveness. Some people simply have impulsive personalities. These people logically make impulsive decisions. And number eight, emotion regulation. Children of disengaged parents tend to have a disability to delay gratification as well as people that are under emotional distress. And number nine, the importance of mood. Time flies when you're having fun, the article says, has been empirically demonstrated. In other words, your mood can dictate a seeking for gratification. And number 10, anticipation. Anticipation for good or bad things can cause you delay or to seek instant gratification, depending on what it is and how your brain works. So, I mean, these make a lot of sense, to be honest. The bottom line, there are a number of reasons we may seek instant gratification from what the thing is to how you process things to your current mood to your age and experience, current status in life, etc., etc. And that brings us to the topic at hand today, fatness or the desire to be less fat, to be more specific. Here's what I know to be true. Weight for nearly everyone is a matter of calories in versus calories out. Another thing I know to be true too many calories in, not enough calories out, makes Danny a big boy. Of course, some people have medical reasons making it difficult to lose weight or keep weight off. Some people have certain dietary needs that make it more difficult. But for most of us, it's in versus out. Another thing I know is that it's much easier, it's much faster, and it feels much better until the inevitable shame and regret kicks in to put the weight on rather than to take the weight off. I don't think I'm alone in saying... I really hate working out. I really hate dieting. I know there are some people that love it. I hate it. I'd much rather just eat what I want when I want and the quantity I want and stay slim and trim. My waistline and the fact that I'll be starting that journey over again in a few weeks when the goals, new and improved for 2024, kick in, it tells me that my plan of preference just isn't going to work for me. If only there was a faster, easier way to lose weight, like a pill or a shot. Back in the 1940s, there were rainbow pills, and those sound nice. They were brightly colored capsules with a pleasant cocktail of amphetamines and diuretics and laxatives and thyroid hormones. Mmm, hashtag slim and trim. Uh, 
The ultimate weight loss occurred when you took those pretty rainbow pills in combination with benzodiazepines or barbiturates and or antidepressants, because then you'd potentially die and once you stop taking in all calories while the weight just falls off of you. According to EverydayHealth.com, quote, None of these medications were tested in long-term trials prior to repurposing them for the treatment of obesity. This raises the risk that they will have side effects not recognized in short-term therapy, says Frank Greenway, MD, Chief Medical Officer and a professor at the Pennington Biomedical Research Center at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. Then, quote, in the 1990s, another untested weight loss cocktail known as FenFen started taking off, research notes. This cocktail mixed the psychiatric drug fenfluramine, which boosts levels of the brain chemical serotonin and induces feelings of satiety with the appetite suppressant fentermine, an older version of fenfluramine marketed as pondimin, pon, pondimin, was on the market for more than two decades, and a newer version called dexfenfluramine, marketed as redux, was sold for about a year before both were recalled in 1997 due to concerns that the products caused heart valve defects. Not to worry, monkeys and pigs have bunches of heart valves we can use, so it's all good. Quote, an appetite suppressant called Cybutramine, marketed as Meridia, was recalled by the FDA in 2010 after more than a decade on the market because of an increased risk of cardiovascular events and strokes. Next up, the prescription weight loss drug Lorcaserin, or Belvic, was recalled by the FDA over cancer concerns in 2020 after more than a decade on the market. Our buddy, Dr. Greenway, said, quote, The majority of the removals of anti-obesity medications were seen in drugs that did not go through the year-long trials. Despite these examples, and more like them, we, chubby humanity, continue to try to find a magic pill or a magic shot or a magic machine or a magic program, something that makes us feel full or jiggles or shocks the weight off, lets us eat as much of one of the blocks of the food pyramid, as long as we stay away from the others, and in only seven minutes per day, three days per week, we'll drop all that excess fat and get totally jacked. Except no. The lose weight fast with no effect scheme never seems to work. Or at least, it doesn't work without side effects. But finally, we've finally done it. Yes, let's slap each other on the back. We've finally found it. Found on Nature.com, but I grabbed it from the Wayback Machine from January of 2023. Headline, The Breakthrough Obesity Drugs That Have Stunned Researchers. These drugs already in existence have been found to just decimate hunger, which causes less calories going in, which means weight starts to fall away. So in November 2022 at the Obesity Week conference, which coincidentally is what I nicknamed pretty much every one of my dinner times, a group of researchers from Denmark-based pharma company Novo Nordisk presented some amazing research results. For 16 months, they've been injecting teenagers weekly with a drug called semaglutide, and they found that that injection, quote, along with some lifestyle changes, led to the reduction in body weight of at least 20% in one-third of the participants. Now, if I did my math right, that would be like 400 pounds for me, so not bad. Previous drug studies in adults yielded the same magnitude of results. 
quote, after decades of work, researchers are finally seeing signs of success. A new generation of anti-obesity medications that drastically diminish weight without the serious side effects that have plagued previous efforts. The article goes on to say that obesity has tripled since 1975 worldwide. And I'll just say this. I was born in 1975. Coincidence? Quote, the WHO recommends healthier diets and physical activity to reduce obesity, but medication might help when lifestyle changes aren't enough. The new drugs mimic hormones known as incretins, incretins, which lower blood sugar and curb appetite. Some have already been approved for treating type 2 diabetes, and they are starting to win approval for inducing weight loss. Now, the article goes on to say that the fact we can cure obesity with a drug lends credence to the concept that obesity is a disease, not just a lack of willpower. Now, I would love to argue that. For those of you that have been following my goal, failure, my goal updates, you know that I struggle with my weight. Not a huge guy, but nonetheless, weight, since the last year or two of college, has been a challenge for me. But if you've been listening to my updates, you know that even in my advanced years, I can still pull the pounds off without too much difficulty and put them back on with even greater ease. And all I'm doing is either enacting willpower or not. The article says that the evidence is growing that everyone has a body size that is hard to change. Richard DeMarchi, a chemist at Indiana University, Bloomington, says, quote, the body will defend its weight. Now, from the reading I've been doing, I think I'd be inclined to agree with Rick to a point, but I don't think that obese is the weight that the body will defend. I think the BMI scale is fairly wrong, and I think there are much better ways to determine your good or ideal weight, but to just throw a blanket statement of saying our bodies defend our weight, that's just giving people an excuse, I'm afraid. Along the same track, labeling obesity and pretty much everything right now a disease is a lie. Now, there are a percentage, probably a very small percentage of people, that literally have a medical condition that leads to obesity. For nearly all of us, though, the disease is laziness or lack of willpower. Labeling something a disease does two things. One, it manipulates the individual into a point of victimhood. Obesity is the enemy, the attacker. The person is simply an innocent bystander, helpless against his or her disease. And two, it allows the use of drugs to counteract it. The pharma companies are all about new drugs for new diseases. That's just liquid profit that's being injected into you. And the doctors are fine with it being a disease as well, as they just follow the disease flowchart, diagnose the one you have, write a script, and send you on your way. Obesity is not a disease. The one final thing I'd like to point out that the general population doesn't seem to link together, the problem in this world, obviously prior to 1975, which isn't that long ago, thank you very much, was starvation. Because of industrialization, because of capitalism, specifically because of the influence that the United States has had in the world, we have an obesity problem now. How prosperous of a world are we that one of our biggest problems is too much food for everyone? Now, is obesity a blessing? In a general sense, yeah, it kind of is. Interestingly enough, for the decade prior to 1975, give or take, there were a number of predictions that we were heading into another ice age. The scientists crunched the numbers and temps were dropping and we're always going to and we're all going to die. Then it switched to global warming practically overnight. Now, has the globe warmed since the 1970s? Uh, yeah, I mean, without going to verify exactly how much, it did slightly, yes. And satellite imagery has shown that this globe is now more green than it's 
ever been, or at least in a long, long time. A part of that green is food. Global warming is good. Okay, a few little rabbit trails, let's move on. The same date as our last article, January 2023, found on uhhospitals.org, headline, Is Ozempic a Miracle Drug for Weight Loss? So Ozempic was approved in 2017 as a type 2 diabetes drug. In 2021, after discovering it resulted in weight loss, it was approved as a weight loss drug under the name Wegovy. Both of these drugs are weekly injections utilizing the active ingredient of semaglutide, which we just spoke of. Originally and currently, this works by increasing a hormone called glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1. This hormone stimulates the release of insulin to control blood sugar. This hormone was found to also suppress appetite by making you feel full, by forcing the stomach to empty slower, and from everything I've heard, making you feel kind of nauseous after eating just a little bit of food. But using this as a weight loss drug rather than a diabetes drug means insurance companies typically won't cover it. No worries, though. Doctors can prescribe it for insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, or pre-diabetes. So pretty much everything. However, those diagnoses do have a time limit. If insurance doesn't cover it, it could run you around $1,000 a month to lose weight by making you not feel hungry or making you feel sick after eating just a little bit, which is limiting the calories in something most of us can do if we utilize willpower. But, I mean, it's only $1,000 a month, so, I mean... This article lays out the pros and cons, which is nice. Pros, weight loss, normalization of insulin and glucose levels in the blood, and improvement in risk factors directly related to cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, and liver disease. Cons, possible gastrointestinal side effects like diarrhea, nausea, or vomiting possible link to pancreatitis and thyroid nodules, and of course the cost. But the biggest pro, even though they didn't state it in the pros column, is uh, its ease. It's much easier to get a shot, even if it's weekly, than it is to exercise and force yourself to, you know, just feel hungry sometimes. And trust you me, I totally get that. Now again, around the same time, January 2023, found on health.clevelandclinic.org, headline, The New Anti-Obesity Drugs, What You Should Know we find that you can lose 15% of your body weight. I hope it's the right 15%, like if it's a leg or my head, that's the wrong 15%, and it can lower your heart disease and diabetes risk. Now, they, a medical organization, state exactly what these are. Quote, frustration is probably the mildest non-swear word to describe the feeling when the scale doesn't budge or after you gain back lost weight. Does it feel like you've tried every type of buzzy diet and all the ways to get fit and trim? Yep, even cardio drumming and still no progress? It's natural to feel like giving up, but new weight loss drugs may be just what you need to accomplish your health goals. Yay! Drugs! They cite W. Scott Bush, an actual medical doctor, they claim, who said, quote, We now understand obesity isn't a character flaw. It's a dysfunction of the complex system that controls body weight, which is largely based on genetics. Oh, well, now it's not your fault. It's, it's not even a disease, or it might be, but maybe not. It's your parents' fault. It's genetics. There's literally nothing you can do about this except for drugs, of course. And as luck would have it, Dr. Bush confirms that, quote, this new generation of drugs is safer and more effective than ever. And all I've got to say about that is flipping sweet. 
by April 2023, found on DazedDigital.com, we get the headline, Ozempic and the Dark History of Weight Loss Drugs. Now, we've covered the dark history, at least slightly, but of note, they're now, in only a few months, talking about the Ozempic craze. Quote, Ozempic is everywhere. On the cover of magazines and splashed across New York's subway, it's the subject of countless memes and jokes, and the stories are true, coursing through the veins of everyone in Hollywood and Manhattan who can get their hands on it. If weight loss were a religion, Ozempic would be its god. The haunting O-O-O Ozempic, heard in its TV ad, a sinister reimagining of Pilate's 1974 anthem, Magic, it's him. Much like the diet-entrenched, skinny-obsessed culture we live in, Talk of Ozempic is everywhere. Uh, they continue, quote, Semaglutide has garnered a lot of traction over a very short period of time, so much so that diabetics are now struggling to get their hands on it thanks to consumer demand. And if you've kept up with any of the current events, you're well aware that everyone and their brother has been scrambling to get their hands on these drugs or any of the similar drugs out there to the joy of big pharma, of course, and, and the horror of those with diabetes that were actually using these drugs to help them, you know, sustain life and not just fit into their skinny jeans. Now, after going through a very extensive history of weight loss drugs and the destruction they've wrought on society over the last hundred years, this article wraps up with, quote, the long-term effects of semaglutide are as yet unknown, particularly when it comes to weight loss purposes, although the history of weight loss drugs counsels extreme caution. Yeah, I, I think I totally agree with that. Then just for fun, they, they go off the rails at this point and say, quote, despite the body positivity movement from the last few years, there is still a long way to go before we move past the fat phobia that is so pervasive in our obesogenic lives. In New York Magazine's cover story about Ozempic, Aubrey Gordon is quoted as saying, the hype around the drug boils down to, can we finally be rid of fat people? Can we finally stop having fat people around so I don't have to look at them anymore? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, that's exactly what this is. This is beyond fat phobia. You know, literally the fear of fat people, even people that hate fat people aren't afraid of them. I just to point that out. Might be fascists or fatsists or something, but, but not fat phobic. Anyway, this is beyond so-called fat phobia. This is literally obesicide, the genocide of obese people by forcing them to lose weight and feel better and improve their health and look better, as well as reduce all sorts of spending on food and gas and clothing, etc., etc. Oh, 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 we're animals. I guess I failed to see how a drug that is literally optional and very expensive for people who want to use it just to lose weight equates to the forcible defattening of the world. If you want to be fat, be fat. If you want to lose weight, well, there's a lot of options to try. That said, this article is correct. It's everywhere. Everyone wants it. It's being touted as a miracle drug, and there are shortages for those that actually need it for the purpose it was designed. Now, in the same month, April 2023, usatoday.com published an article headline, Why Experts Worry the Magic in New Weight Loss Medications Carries a Dark Side. The byline states, quote, Drug makers are working hard to convince Americans they need their next generation weight loss medications, but many come with side effects and the fact we don't really know what happens long term. Caution. Digression ahead. A lesser man will point out that usatoday.com also published article after article about how we should all partake of the miracle drug inaccurately termed a vaccine, 
for COVID with quite literally not one single piece of long-term effects. But I'm much too big of a man to point out that little slice of hypocrisy. Digression over. They bring the third miracle drug into the conversation in addition to Ozempic and Wegovy. Let's all welcome Monjoro. Quote, but some doctors, psychologists, and eating disorder experts worry these new medications originally developed to treat diabetes could become a problem long term. Most people are likely to regain weight if they don't keep taking the drugs for life, and the psychological toll of that rebound could be damaging, psychologists predict. Those who lose weight on the once-weekly shots will probably still need to exercise and eat well to see a health benefit. Substantial weight loss is generally associated with an improvement in health, but that has not yet been shown with these medications. And people may not realize how much the companies making these $1,000 a month medications are working behind the scenes to convince them they need the appetite-suppressing drugs. The companies, society, and many doctors are reinforcing the false idea that a certain body mass index equals health and another equals illness, she said. There are people at a whole range of sizes and BMIs that are healthy when you look at actual diseases. Dennis said, weight loss drugs are not a cure. For many of these folks, they have no actual illness. They then go into a discussion about the training, the lobbying, the messaging and advertising, basically the indoctrination that the pharma companies are doing to promote this and other drugs, both to doctors and to you and me. They, of course, believe that the best way to get us these weight loss drugs that we absolutely all need is to get government or commercial insurance to pay for it. You know, other people's money. In addition to pulling in another drug, USA Today pulls in another reason for our weight gain. Quote, the human body has evolved to hold on to extra pounds, interpreting weight loss as a life-threatening famine. So again, it's evolution's fault, but it's a little bit differently evolution's fault. Ugh, darn you, evolution. On the other hand, whatever makes it not my fault. You know what I'm saying? Now, I have actually heard of and subscribed to the theory that the body will go into, for lack of a better term, famine mode. But I've always heard that from a standpoint of radically changing your diet all at once. You know, the body kind of goes into shock and won't burn the fat for a while, which is why it's better to continue with at least some of what you've always eaten, just smaller amounts, and why a cheat day here and there is actually a good thing. Now, of course, I'm wondering if this has always been a lie. You know, uh, lies like the earth being round and birds are real. They cite another study that was done, the longest to date, a 68-week study of over 1,900 adults taking a once-a-week injection. By the end of the study, the weight loss plateaued and actually started to climb again. They say this suggests that the body acclimates to the drugs. Reagan Chastain, a patient advocate and activist who researches the weight loss industry, said, quote, We certainly don't know what will happen if people are on these weight loss drugs for the rest of their lives, which is what Novo is suggesting. And I say, the rest of their lives? I mean, I would think this would eventually morph into a pill from a shop, but maybe not. But can you imagine being on a weekly injection for the rest of your life? That is the definition of a disease. They're basically telling fat humanity that they have no power over their bodies, that they're sick and they need medicine and it'll be a lifetime illness, no cure, only management through Big Pharma. What a scam. What a filthy lying scam. But that's okay. Quote, Dr. Diana Alba, an endocrinologist at the University of California, San Francisco, said she's not worried about the long-term effects of these GLP-1 drugs because similar ones have been on the market for decades to treat diabetes. 
We see obesity as a disease, and we treat it like having high blood pressure, having type 2 diabetes, she said. No one would expect blood pressure or blood sugar levels to remain just as controlled if someone stopped their medication for those conditions. But obesity isn't high blood pressure. It's not type 2 diabetes. It's obesity for nearly everyone. It's too many ingoing calories and not enough outgoing. That's not a disease. But the makers of these drugs are more than open in saying that people will regain weight if they stop taking the shots. So obesity isn't a disease, but they're making it into one. Additionally, they're making more diseases at the same time they're turning obesity into a disease. Quote, the drugs also come with a warning that they may increase the risk of thyroid cancer, acute pancreatitis, gallbladder disease, low blood sugar, kidney injury, damage to the eye's retina, and suicidal thinking or behavior. Now, keep in mind, this article is from April. The article in January said the side effects were possible gastrointestinal side effects, you know, like diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, possible links to pancreatitis and thyroid nodules. And now, three months later, they add thyroid cancer, not just nodules, acute pancreatitis, not just a link to pancreatitis, gallbladder disease, low blood sugar, kidney injury, damage to the retina, and suicidal thoughts. But hey, you lost weight quick with basically no effort. So, uh, you know, win-win, right? And then get this, quote, The American Academy of Pediatrics changed its guidelines in January and now recommends aggressive weight loss methods for children as young as two, including surgery and medications for those as young as 12. WeGovy was approved in December for use in children ages 12 and up after approval of an earlier GLP-1 agonist from Novo Nordisk in 2020 for the same age group. Can someone tell me why we're doing this? I mean, I know why you and I are taking the meds. We've fallen into this mode of blind trust, right? I mean, well, if the FDA says it's okay, if the WHO or the NIH says it's okay, fine. But we've stopped thinking. But, but why are all these agencies shoving drugs on us at a rate I've never seen before? We've all seen the ads on TV that we all make fun of, right? The three-second drug spot showing happy, active people. And then the 27 seconds after that of all the side effects. But that's turned into mainstream medicine now. I don't want to be conspiratorial, but addicting children and conditioning them to just, you know, take the pills or take the shot. Is that a problem? Or is this depopulation? The more disease we can make the population, the shorter the lifespans. The less reproduction, the smaller the population, the more we've saved the planet. Or is this just some collusion between big pharma and these agencies? Just a, a get-rich-quick scheme. I really, I, I have no idea, to be honest. In July 2023, found on VeryWellHealth.com, headline, How Weight Loss Drugs Can Affect Your Heart. Well, this article compiled a number of studies of different drugs going back to around 2010, some older versions of essentially the same drugs as today, up to the drugs that we have today. They're finding that these drugs either slightly drop your top number of your blood pressure, which I believe is the lub, uh, you know, the, the big push, or increase your blood pressure overall, either one and slightly increase your resting heart rate, which could cause problems with arrhythmias later. Additionally, since these drugs slow the emptying of the stomach into the intestines, it will always slow the process of getting heart meds into people since they won't be absorbed as quickly. 
October 2023 found on NBCNews.com headline, Popular weight loss drugs linked to rare but severe stomach problems, study finds. The byline gives us a slight clue what the problems might be. Quote, some patients have reported developing stomach paralysis after having used the drugs. To make the connection, they're speaking of Wegovy and Ozempic and other similar drugs, and this was a study published by JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, a premier publication and organization. The chance of stomach paralysis or its friends gastroparesis pancreatitis or bowel obstruction is rare but it's happening the rate for these various issues seems to be about eight to ten out of one thousand for the various drugs which doesn't seem like a large number but ten out of one thousand means you have a one percent chance of one of these rare potentially hospital and surgery requiring quote significant impact on the quality of life issues happening. And as they point out, when you're talking millions of people scrambling for these drugs, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people with these issues. Now, moving into November and December of 2023, the population has finally read the studies, analyzed the side effects, and decided that the risk just isn't worth it. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. The demand is actually higher than ever. Now, Eli Lilly has jumped into the fray with Monjoro, a different drug with the same purpose, many of the same side effects, but you'll lose more and you'll lose it faster. And we all know that faster is always better for literally everything. The shortages are to a point that other pharmacies are compounding semaglutide to try to meet demand. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not like compounders or compoundists those who compound, are doing anything wrong or dangerous or even really anything different, but they're doing it because the demand is through the roof, causing shortages of the weight loss drugs. And lest you forget, this wasn't a weight loss drug until recently. In November 2023, found on abc7chicago.com headline, Diabetes patients struggle to find Ozempic due to its popularity as weight loss drug. Yes, our vanity, our laziness, our desire to get something with little to no effort is literally jeopardizing the health and life of those who actually need this diabetes, not weight loss, diabetes drug. Doesn't matter though, we want our weight loss and we want it now. No matter who else it puts at risk, no matter how much it costs, no matter what the risks are, no matter if most of us can lose weight, albeit more slowly and with more difficulty, without the drugs, we want it now and we want it easy. We see this literally everywhere. We are a spoiled, self-centered, impatient humanity. At least, I would say the, the industrialized world really is. We want to get rich quick. We, we don't want to slowly save and pay cash for things, only buy what we have money for, use the power of compound interest. We want to play the lottery or hit the casino or more recently, create content. You know, YouTube, TikTok, and most recently, make your own homemade porn and sell it through like OnlyFans and similar sites. Whatever you need to sacrifice for the pleasure only money can give. Don't worry about the poverty, the debt, the broken lives. Don't worry about selling your very being. If we hit it big, it'll all be worth it in the end. Uh, speaking of pleasure, speaking of OnlyFans, no more waiting for marriage, no more waiting for love, no more waiting for commitment. Now we're at a point of just hooking up to hook up. We want our pleasure and we want it now. We've got abortion and morning after pills to take care of any oopsies, so it's all fine. So we just keep swiping right until we find someone who wants the same first names only thing that we want. And if we're really lucky, we can video the interaction and make some money off of our new piece of content. 
HIV is mostly survivable. There are all sorts of drugs for it now. Other STDs are just, uh, they're just annoyances at this point, right? Broken relationships, the emptiness of body counts as the counter keeps ticking up, the loneliness of empty relationships, the regrets. Well, at least we had fun for a little while. And bringing it back to drugs, let's throw the COVID vaccine back out there again. As I said a few minutes ago, we have people that are decrying the lack of long-term studies for these weight loss drugs with years of data as a diabetes drug and at least a few studies of over a year as a weight loss drug. But the COVID non-vaccine was perfectly safe, short and long-term, after a few weeks of testing. Why? Because we were told it was, and we were told it was going to kill the virus dead and its tracks, and, and, and that it was the only way to stop the lockdowns and the masking and get back to normal. Uh, yet none of that came true. It was all a lie to push an agenda. It did nothing, but a massive number of people jumped at it because they wanted to live and have normalcy back. So rather than wait and study and analyze, read and learn, well, we rolled up our sleeves and posted pictures on Facebook shaming those of us that didn't get the chemical injection as the filthy super spreaders that are killing grandma. We have an addiction to instant gratification. And when you think about it, we've always had this problem. Abram and Lot grew too big for their shared britches, so they decided they better split up. Abram gave Lot the option of where he wanted to live. Abram would go the other direction. Quote, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Then Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all of the valley of Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived in the cities of the valley. Now, as we know, this decision uh, to take the easy route, taking the best land, living in the established city, or at least close to it, it didn't end well. Lot and his entire household were taken prisoners of war or whatever. Abram saved his can on that one. And then Lot and his family were forced to run for their lives. And wow, did this make his wife salty. <laughs> the last we hear of Lot, he and his daughters are living in a cave and the daughters make some rash decisions of their own. Moving forward in time, we come upon Esau, who sold his birthright for some stew. Stew! That's like the worst trade ever. It wasn't even like a juicy ribeye or a never-ending pasta bowl. It was stew! Gross! Quote, And Esau said, Behold, I am about to die! So of what use is this birthright to me? I mean, his logic was solid, but it was based on a rumbly tummy, not reality. And in his desire to instantly gratify that hunger he made a decision that reverberated throughout his entire life. The Israelites in the wilderness, after their miraculous exodus from Egypt, after seeing the mountain covered, hearing the voice of God thunder down, after only 40 days, they wanted their own God. So, you know, Moses was obviously dead or something. They needed a God, and the golden calf was fashioned to satisfy that desire. Didn't end well. What about David and Bathsheba, a sin of lust, instantly gratified, resulting in adultery, lies, murder, and death? And what about the Israelites in Jerusalem shouting Hosanna, throwing palm branches at the feet of Jesus, their Savior, their conquering King, their Messiah? And then in less than a week, they were shouting from the courtyard, crucify him, as he was not going to deliver what they decided they needed right then. Nearly 20 times in the book of Psalms, the psalmist asks, how long, generally addressed, O Lord? And each is resolved 
with praise and worship of a God who is in complete control, a sovereign God with a sovereign plan that is working exactly as designed at the exact pace it was designed to work. In Revelation 6, the martyrs cry out in a loud voice, quote, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The response was to, quote, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Not only no instant gratification, but more strife and turmoil until the appointed time. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, to devote ourselves in prayer. Patience is one of the gifts of the Spirit, a gift that all Christians possess to varying degrees, and through sanctification it should be growing in strength. Second Peter tells us that, quote, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Our perception of slowness is screwed up. Our understanding of patience is tainted and twisted. Sometimes gratification for a desire or a need will come instantly. And if that's the case, so be it. Praise God. Wanting gratification for a desire to come quickly is natural for likely nearly everyone. Thinking that there is somewhere, somehow, a way to gratify all of our desires instantly is foolishness. If we're violating the commands of God in order to shortcut the satisfaction of a desire, it's sin. If we're taking foolish chances that may jeopardize ourselves or others in order to attempt instant gratification, we're being just that again, foolish. If we're jumping on the miracle cure bandwagon because of fear, frustration, or some other emotion, void of logical thought, void of mindful evaluation, again, we're just acting as fools. In all things, in all decisions, all actions, we should first look within to determine from where this desire originates. What emotion, if any, is driving this desire? Then we need to ensure the action we want to take is not sinful. Finally, we should evaluate if our action would be wise. If the action we're wanting to take violates any of these basic principles, we should not take that action. Step back, reevaluate, come up with a different plan, or maybe reject the desire entirely if the desire itself is sinful or unwise. If our action would not be in violation, seek God's wisdom, seek godly counsel from others, and only when we feel confident that we can take the action should we then proceed to make the decision of either yes or no. We're living in an impatient world that's in a constant state of panic and hurry that ingrains in our very thought process that if we want an Oompa Loompa, we should get our Oompa Loompa now. Slow down. Seek God. Realize how blessed your life is regardless of if your desire is satisfied or not. Then use God's gift of wisdom and logic when making your next choice. Well, I'm conflicted here. So we're, we're going to kind of go around the horn in this segment, but at one point I'm going to have to do the unthinkable and defend something that I absolutely abhor. I mean, this is literally the enemy of my enemy is my friend or the lesser of two evils. Two wrongs making a right. I don't know, something like that. And what's even crazier is that you're going to agree with me, and I don't think you're going to like it either. Let's talk about science. Uh, no, not the science. You know, Dr. Admiral El Presidente, His Grace Lord Anthony Fauci. Speaking of, did you hear what that little troll said the other day? Not only did he say back in 2021 that if you criticize him, you're actually criticizing science, but just a few days ago in a walking interview with the BBC, as he and interviewer Katie Kay walked past a church, he pointed out that that's where he and his wife were married in 1985. She asked if he still attends, which, <laughs> shocker, he doesn't. And why not? Quote, a number of complicated reasons. 
First of all, I think my own personal ethics on life are enough to keep me going on the right path, and I think that there are enough negative aspects about the organizational church that you're very well aware of. I'm not against it. I identify myself as a Catholic. I was raised. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I was married in the church. My children were baptized in the church. But as far as practicing it, it seems almost like a pro forma thing that I don't really need to do. What an arrogant little man. And really, to be honest, sadly, these are the words of a hellbound man. Not one thing he said and not one thing he does or did. His current attitude didn't and won't save him. But that's not why we're here. It's just an added kind of a sad bonus story if you hadn't heard that. No, we're here to talk about science. Specifically, we're here to talk about evolutionary science, one of my favorite topics, as you may be well aware if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time. Now, I've got three articles that are related through the common parent of evolution and a fourth article that's, let's call it loosely related, but it was a topic that hit me so odd, I actually just wanted to tell you about it, so I'm going to throw it in here because I don't know where else to put it. And let's start with that one. It's, um, it's something I would have never even thought of. Found on APNews.com headline, California scientists seek higher pay in three-day strike drawing thousands of picketers. Okay, tell me that I'm not the only one that never even considered that there was a scientist union or that they'd go on strike to try and shake down their evil overlords. All right, so th- this took place back in mid-November when over 1,000 California state scientists decided to go on a three-day strike after three years of stalled contract negotiations. These union poindexters stated, quote, We're not here to settle for anything less than the fair pay and respect that we deserve and new pocket protectors. I might have added that last bit. So first of all, they want the respect they deserve. What exactly does that mean? I mean, they're a bunch of science nerds. They haven't been respected ever. I mean, I, I kid, but I mean, look, I'm a science nerd of sorts. I don't have any respect given to me. I, I understand these things. I can say these things about them. Seriously, though, this union, the California Association of Professional Scientists, actually represents, get this, about 5,200 scientists across more than 50 state departments in California. Now, how could the state need, I mean, that one, that many departments, but that many scientists? Apparently, these people work on topics like earthquake warning systems, wildfire protection, air pollution, a bunch of other things. And this year, with contract wins across the country due to strikes and blackmail and shakedowns, you know, by, uh, you know, the various groups of organized crime, organized labor, including healthcare, actors and writers, the big three auto workers, well, the taped glasses brigade, they want their piece of the money pie while the getting's good. In fact, these guys say that the Marxist governor of California, Gavin Gruesome Newsom, who is systematically destroying the state, although side note, he has exponentially increased the amount of human poo on the streets, so he's got that going for him. Well, apparently he refuses to recognize the work they're doing and is paying them 40 to 60% less than the professionals in comparable positions, which makes me ask the question, why don't they just take jobs in those other positions? I know, it's not always as simple as that. I mean, just asking, though. So various scientists say they believe that they're in the best positions to protect the environment, but they're not getting paid enough to live in the bigger cities. 
Oh, and I, I guarantee they're not. Nobody can afford to live in a city in California anymore. Yeah, look, I really, I wish the best for them. I'm not a fan of unions. I don't think that's any mystery. I think that whatever unions used to be, they, they definitely aren't that now. They don't really help their members. They don't really help their companies. They don't really help the average consumer. Unions really only help the union bosses when you boil it right down. Those bosses get rich by blackmailing companies and forcing their members to suffer for it. That said, these scientists, allegedly smart people, join these unions... So it is what it is, and I can't imagine living in California these days, let alone working there, or worse, working for the state there. So look, all the best to them. Moving on. One of those areas, a large area that these scientists would work in, is the environment. As we all know, the environment is in dire straits. I mean, it's practically dead. And you and I, humans, are the cause. But humans are also the answer, the solution, if you will, but we need to act quickly, and we need to act drastically and dramatically or something. Just look around you. There's barely an environment left. What are you waiting for? But we are making progress. Found on WFIN.com. Headline, Movement to Give Nature Same Rights as Humans Gain Steam in U.S. Yeah, not, not some rights. I didn't read that wrong. The same rights as humans. Nature and the environment. Same as humans. But let's be honest, look, I mean, trees are people too, right? We all know that. So in California, no, 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 in, in, in a global movement, <laughs> quote, Panama, Ecuador, and Bolivia have all moved to recognize the rights of nature with national legislation, a movement that has gained traction around the world and in the United States, with 10 states having some form of legal protections for nature, according to a report by CBS News. Panama is the most recent country to walk down this path of idiocy. And by doing this, one of their largest copper mines, and in fact, one of the largest copper mines in the world, was now just recently shut down. And thank goodness for that. This world has no use for copper at all. Definitely don't have any electrical needs, battery needs. We don't have anything that we really need this copper for. <clears throat> it is funny though, isn't it? When you exist on the political left, all policies and all fanciful desires, they all conflict with all of the others. The left is a heavily, just heavily emotional political side of the spectrum. And this is why most of the policies, laws, and programs that they desperately fight for make no logical sense. And in no way could they ever coexist. Now, the right, in general, follows a coherent theme of freedom, liberty, and personal responsibility. But uh, as we can well see, even they have veins of rot that are running through them, so they aren't without their problems. Better than the left, though. Anyway, you'll be happy to know that Panama didn't arrive at this decision on their own. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, this was an idea exported to them by an American. Callie Vielenturf, a 31-year-old marine biologist from Massachusetts, is behind this uh, stupidity. Apparently, in 2018, she had to fight a legal battle to protect herself from sexual harassment. And that's when she realized, quote, nature did not have the same legal recourse she had as a human. Now, I don't know how broken your brain has to be to make that connection, but that is simply one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. She said, quote, I realize that we can't defend the rights of nature as I had just defended my rights because nature largely has no rights in our legal systems. <laughs> right, Callie, that's because it's nature. It's 
It's not human. But now this is her life's work. Uh, this is her mission, you know, to, to fight for the right, not to party so much, but for nature to be treated like humans. It or they or she or them. I don't know nature's pronouns. He, Z, that, that's what she wants it, them to be, is to be treated like humans. So somehow she got an audience with the Panamanian first lady and then the parliament and bada bing, bada boom, a $10 billion copper mine was shut down because it apparently was threatening a tropical jungle and some water. I don't know. And as we know, we're not allowed to threaten other people, other nature people. Can we just start calling it the human environment? Maybe that would be better. Just a bit of side information on this copper mine as I found this fascinating. This is, or at least it was, a union mine. In September 2023, First Quantum Minerals Limited, which is based in Canada, was fighting to avert a strike by the workers. By October, they had arrived at an agreement just barely avoiding this strike, and the Congress and the President of Panama rapidly and overwhelmingly approved the deal. This deal was going to guarantee Panama's government $375 million in revenue per year, which is up from $61 million in 2021, for the next 20 years with an option to renew after that. Now, Panama has an annual GDP of around 80 billion, which makes it around the 75th to 80th country ranked by GDP. For reference, the United States has a GDP of about 25 trillion. So relatively speaking, 375 million per year is a good chunk of revenue for Panama. Additionally, this contract was going to adjust salaries and bonuses for the workers. Now I searched and searched. I couldn't find any info on the salaries and wages. Didn't really care that much. But generally, miners make fairly good wages as compared to other professions. Now the protests that have been going on, they continued on. And by early December, the Supreme Court of Panama, well, they just ruled that the contract was unconstitutional just made it null and void, and with the end result that the first quantum mine was ordered to shut down. This directly affects 8,000 employees of the mine and over 30,000 other workers in related industries that relied on that mine. So in order to save the jungle, which, to be honest, if you look at the pictures, this is just a big pit in the ground. It's already there. I don't know what more they're going to do to this poor jungle. Well, they, they're going to remove about 1.5% of global copper production. They remove a big chunk of revenue for the country and directly impact the lives of about 40,000 people for a jungle. Thanks, Callie. Good work. You, you should be proud of yourself. And of course, the U.S. isn't immune to this stupidity. They cite the rights of salmon to pass through the city dams in Seattle and North Carolina working on giving rights to the Haw River ecosystem. Now, Callie, the planet-saving, human-destroying eco-warrior with an elevated perception of self-importance, said, It's just exciting every time. It never gets old. What we're doing now is obviously not working, and so this provides a different way of interacting with nature. I think we're at a point now where it's worth a shot. <clears throat> Actual voice was assumed and then impersonated. Yeah, super exciting, Callie. Good, good work. So where does this kind of delusion come from? Well, it's all steeped in evolution. It's a godless worldview that raises nature to the level of deity. But since it requires us to protect it, it's a it's a pretty weak deity. Or or we're also a deity. I'm not really sure. Is this a bi-deity type of thing? Or maybe it's a symbiotic deity. You know, nature creates us and gives us life. But we must rescue nature and give it life for it to continue giving us life. I don't know. It's kind of a nonsensical and stupid theory, to be honest. Why stupid? Well, because there's literally no way that life could have just popped into... 
Uh-oh. Okay, hold on now. Found on ScienceAlert.com headline, Scientists just recreated the chemical reaction that must have led to life on Earth. Huh. They start by asking a very simple question. Quote, how did life begin? How did chemical reactions on the early Earth create complex, self-replicating structures that developed into living things as we know them? Huh. Ooh, 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 over here, pick me, pick me. <clears throat> They didn't. That's a stupid theory that's unseen, unprovable, untestable, not able to be replicated, and defies all laws of physics, biology, and logic. Am I close? <laughs> and no, no, apparently I'm not close. So we all know about DNA, obviously, right? <laughs> Need to go through that. And we all know that RNA is the more basic unit than DNA, and we know that evolved first, yet it still exists, I guess, because evolution doesn't Anyway, it's pretty obvious when you think about it. And then the RNA is made up of even smaller components called ribonucleotides. Quote, how would these building blocks have formed on the early Earth and then combined into RNA? Oh, 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 I, over here, I know. I, no, 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 I'm being told no. Okay, let, let's continue on. Now, they do know that this happened automatically. They know for a fact that this, quote, must have been able to happen in the messy, complicated environment found on our planet billions of years ago. The author and his colleagues are studying the idea of autocatalytic reactions, which is a fun word to say, as the method of life starting. Autocatalytic reactions, on the off chance, however unlikely, that there's someone in this audience that doesn't know what that is, is a reaction that produces chemicals that promotes the reaction taking place again, and so on and so on. Now, to study this, they're integrating autocatalysts, quote, into a well-known chemical pathway for producing the ribonucleotide building blocks, which could have plausibly happened with these simple molecules and complex conditions found on the early Earth. First off, I'm not sure he knows what the definition of plausible is. Second, he's done nothing but prove that Already existing chemicals that function in a way that's already known are being introduced into a very precise location of something that's a known component of life that's already existing, done by an existing being with a high level of intelligence. The author cites one of the best examples of an autocatalytic reaction, the Formos reaction, obviously. This is like some sort of black magic. Ready? Quote, in essence, and that's a key phrase, in essence, the foremost reaction starts with one molecule of a simple compound called glycoaldehyde, which is made of hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen, and ends with two. Now, you may be thinking that if that's the case, how has glycoaldehyde not just taken over the universe in the billions of years it's been in existence, or, or even the hundreds of millions of years, or just maybe taken over Earth? Because... If one becomes two, well, then two becomes four, and four to eight, and eight to 16, and on and on into infinity. But here's the trick. The in essence part of his statement, it, it kind of summarizes the fact that it needs, quote, a constant supply of another simple compound called formaldehyde. Okay, so it's not actually autocatalytic. It's, it's catalytic. It's a simple reaction process between two compounds. One, the formaldehyde, serving as the catalyst, using it in order to make more of the original. Well, he explains, quote, A reaction between glycoaldehyde and formaldehyde makes a bigger molecule, splitting off fragments that feed back into the reaction and keep it going. However, once the formaldehyde runs out, the reaction stops, and the products start to degrade from 
complex sugar molecules into tar. Now, this reaction uses some of the same ingredients as the, quote, well-known chemical pathway to make ribonucleotides. But see, they've never linked those two things, those two different reactions together, because, well, the foremost reaction is essentially life-killing. Now, he doesn't say that here, at least not in that way. He says the foremost reaction is notorious for being, <clears throat> quote, unselective. This means it produces a lot of useless molecules alongside the actual products you want, except that it, that's kind of disingenuous. The reality is that formaldehyde is poisonous to life, so as long as that exists, life can't start. But once the formaldehyde is used up and out of the way, well, then, then what was formed starts to turn into, into tar, not life, tar, which, which is also a poison as far as the creation of life goes. So what they did, because this is totally how evolution works, is that they added another known existing chemical, cyanamide, which is just a blue-colored anamide. See what I did there? Cyanamide, blue, never mind. So they take the existing chemical, gently insert it into the existing reaction of existing chemicals, using, using their intelligence to do so, and then they siphon off very specific molecules, like evolution has been known to do time and time again, that leads to the creation of ribonucleotides, in theory. <laughs> Hashtag evolution. He admits that they still don't produce a lot of building blocks you know, that would or could eventually lead to the creation of ribonucleotides, but those that they do siphon off are, quote, more stable and less likely to degrade. So, so they hashtag life finds a way, I guess, right? Well, this isn't much different from the old Miller-Urey experiment that was done in the early 1950s. I've talked about this before. This is where they combined some stuff. They made a bunch of toxic stuff and a couple of amino acids, which are building blocks to life. They filtered off what they considered to be good and claimed it to be how evolution started, but proved that at the very base level, it takes intelligence and a very systematic guided process to create anything even close to resembling building blocks of life. In all actuality, they proved nothing, but it's in the textbooks. Well, I take that back. They, they did prove that they have no idea how, nor any way to prove how life could possibly begin naturally through evolution. They did prove that. And this is the frustration. We get these so-called scientists not performing science at all, and they know it, and they make unsubstantiated claims of all sorts of fanciful findings and experimental results, proving evolution to be absolutely true, and these are accepted as fact, parroted by the media and science journals, taught to kids in primary and college, and those of us that see through the garbage science and call them out for what they are, just evolution fundamentalists, well, we're mocked as being flat earthers. Oh, well. Now, I'm guessing you're probably with me so far, right, through these, these first few articles, still waiting for the curveball? Well, here it comes. Found on the collegefix.com headline, Evolutionary Biology-Themed Institute Works to Debunk Gender Spectrum Nonsense. Now, this is an angle I wouldn't have considered, and one that, to be honest, it, it doesn't actually work, but let's see what they say. The article is highlighting a group that was formed in 2020 named the Paradox Institute, who apparently deem themselves science communicators who, quote, are taking a stand against what they view as outright science denial. They want to, quote, inoculate young people against falling for gender spectra ideology myths and falsehoods. 
Now, this group who states, quote, the denial of the two sexes is one of the fundamental issues of our time is trying to communicate actual science facts through the use of essays, both written and audio, pamphlets, short animations, and podcasts on various topics. Some of their current titles are The Denial of Biological Sex, Why Sex is Binary, and Defining Sex versus Determining Sex. Now, unlike what it appears the public education system and the leftist perverted groomer politicians want to do, this group doesn't target children, you know, from birth. They're focused on late teens to late 20s as their target audience. Now, I'm not sure how I feel about that, to be honest, because if you've got kids, well, this is not really, there's no if about this. Since we have kids that are being increasingly assaulted and more accurately stated sexually assaulted from the time they're born, will this group be able to just wake them back up at 15 years old or later? I don't know, but it's something. They're, they're doing something. And that said, they're also trying to educate parents of children that have been abused by teachers, doctors, psychiatrists, counselors, and social media perverts, all telling kids that they have gender dysphoria. You know, it's really sad to think that adult parents aren't clear on the issue of, of gender, but equally sad uh, is the fact that we're here. <laughs> here we are. So this group is working with well-known evolutionists such as Colin Wright, who I don't know, and Jerry Coyne, who I do know, or at least I know of, to, quote, ensure the organization's content is consistent with the current scientific literature. Now, Jerry Coyne said that the Paradox Institute is, quote, a site that looks to be a goldmine of information on human sex, how sex evolved, why there are only two sexes, and on the various disorders of sex development. The founder of the Paradox Institute, Zachary Elliott, has realized the same thing that many of us have. This latest explosion in the numbers of people, kids and others, that have so-called gender dysphoria are actually infected with a social contagion. He says that the psychological, mental, emotional issues, you know, like anxiety, depression, isolationism, and the fact that no kid likes how they look at various points of development makes kids more susceptible to those who look unstoppably, unflappably happy since they transitioned their gender, which, I'll say again, isn't actually possible. You can't transition a gender. He adds that people love to be part of the in crowd, to be culturally fashionable, so they'll follow that crowd in order to fit in. And I'll add, how evil are we as a society, or at least how evil are certain people in a society that they'll literally make a living child sacrifice fashionable? He calls the whole concept of the gender spectrum, quote, fashionable nonsense. Adding, quote, maybe there are some half-truths in it. Like, for example, the sex spectrum idea tells you that there's this spectrum and diversity between male and female. Well, there's diversity within male and female, but it's within males and within females. It's a very appealing notion, but when you actually evaluate the claims in detail and understand the scientific literature and the evidence, it's all on the foundation of sand. It's not based in reality. Now, let me say this. Good on Mr. Zachary Elliott and the Paradox Institute. Their desired end result of his message is spot on, but he's approaching it from a godless worldview of evolution, a very unscientific, fantasy-based, very dangerous worldview of evolution. If you listen to this podcast for any length of time, you'll know how I feel about the entire fairy tale of evolution, and you'll know why. It's a stupid, unprovable, unscientific, nonsensical theory. 
Furthermore, the theory of evolution and the anemic teachings of the church on this subject has just cratered the faith of so many kids in the exact age range that this group is targeting. Now, likely for most of us, we've argued brutish, uncaring theories of only two genders, or at least we've heard it argued, from the religious standpoint. You know, in the beginning, God made the male and female, right? And that's absolutely correct. And we've heard it argued from the anatomical standpoint, as the child said in Kindergarten Cop, boys have a penis, girls have a vagina. We've heard it argued from the biological standpoint, you know, XX versus XY. And all of those are correct. But apparently these guys are arguing it from the evolutionist standpoint. Now, looking at the read section of their website, specifically under the category of evolutionary biology, there are four articles listed. They've got a few on the origin of the two sexes. They've got one entitled The Origin and Demise of the Y Chromosome with a summary of, quote, the degradation of the Y chromosome follows a long history of sex chromosome turnover. Even if it disappears, males will still be produced. But how? Evolutionary genetics provides us with the answers. I don't even know where to start with that one. Sex chromosome turnover? What, what is that? The disappearance of the Y chromosome? But the one that really caught my eye was entitled Sex Biology and the Gish Gallop, with a summary of, quote, Forrest Valke is known for debunking young earth creationism, but when it comes to the biology of sex, he uses their same fallacious tactics. Now, I'm not going to go into this article, it's not the point, but you've got to hear the first few paragraphs. This gives us the gist of the article. Quote, Imagine you are trying to win a debate, and instead of presenting your argument with relevant evidence, you gather an incredible amount of irrelevant data against your opponent's position. This is common with young Earth creationists who believe that the Earth was created 6,000 years ago. To try and validate their beliefs, young Earth creationists dump an incredible number of arguments, one after the other, onto the opponent, from the idea that the light coming from the other stars was created in transit to make the appearance of age, to the idea that radiometric dating and other objective methods of dating rocks and fossils are based on a host of incorrect assumptions, some of these arguments seem complex, and they might be, yet they are all irrelevant misinterpretations of the evidence or just complete fabrications. The key is that they all take advantage of people's ignorance. This is known as the Gish Gallop. It is a fallacy often found in pseudoscience, where you attempt to drown your opponent in a flood of individually weak arguments, which take much energy to refute. While it was and still is common with young Earth creationists, the strategy is now being used by sex spectrum pseudoscientists. Okay, well, I think that even I could win a debate with this guy on the young Earth creation versus evolution thing. He's very dismissive of things he doesn't understand. But from a 10,000 foot view, this guy is my sworn theological enemy. He's in the other camp. He's fighting for the baddies. However, in the specific topic at hand, no, he's not. I mean, even look, look at it from an evolutionary worldview. I'm not even sure he could claim that humans weren't evolving to become many gendered or unigendered or whatever. I mean, his worldview does not allow him to claim what he's claiming if he's honest. But I'm not saying anything. I like the final goal of less destroyed children. So, I mean, okay, good. So can we, Christians, fight alongside those who we are in strict theological opposition to? Can we work with those who we adamantly disagree. Can we partner with another sector of society that we clearly understand as a group 
whose belief system leads to eternal damnation and hell, either through direct opposition to the gospel message or through blatant theological error. What we're talking about here is called ecumenicism. Essentially, this is people of different belief systems working or cooperating or coming together on a topic. Generally, this term is used in the world of religion, and depending on who you are, this can be viewed as positive or negative, or potentially both, <laughs> depending. Now, there's a saying from the early 17th century by Rupertus Maldinius, and if you don't know who that is, well, that makes you human. And it reads, quote, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, if you've been in the Christian circle world, whatever, long enough, you've likely heard someone say this. It's basically a formula to create peace in the Christian world. It says it for the core doctrines to think things like virgin birth and resurrection, salvation through repentance and faith, etc., etc. We must be unified if we are to be in the community of believers, the communion of saints, if you will. For those things that are not specified in the Bible, there is freedom to choose as the Holy Spirit leads and prompts. Think things like Types of instruments, if any, in worship, drinking alcohol. Now, not to drunkenness, that is specified. Or smoking. The fancy word for this is adiaphora. We can freak out because someone in the church has no problem with certain things that we absolutely despise, but if there isn't clear teaching or principles in the Bible that we can apply, well, we have to bow to our own personal conscience under the assumption that it's the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and we must allow liberty for the conscience of someone else to be different from ours. Now, charity is the one that can give us the problems. This is kind of the emergency exit out of the first two. It's okay to agree to disagree. We don't need to get all disagreeable and argumentative about things. Just let's all get along. Now, this is generally a poor saying, to be honest. The first two parts are fine, but the third qualifier kind of nullifies the first two statements. That said, can we, as Christians, as Protestant Christians, and that's important, work with others in intersecting areas of interests despite our different belief systems. This, in my opinion, is quite literally in non-essentials liberty, at least sort of. A number of years ago, I was the leader of the children's ministry team at the church I was attending. It was suggested that we partner with a small church down the road, different denomination, but a Protestant church, to put our VBS programs together. And so we did. The first year we did it at our church, it went very well. The next year we did the same thing. Well, only a few weeks before VBS that second year, I had an interesting conversation with one of the leaders of their children's ministry regarding abortion and how she was personally against it, but felt that it was really the right of the woman to make her own choice. Well, this caused me some concern. The next thing that caught my eye was that while we were decorating their church for the summer VBS event, there was an awful lot of rainbow stuff in the sanctuary and, and around the church in a very specific month. Then during VBS, their church always had an adult group that would meet while the kids met. Now, I was asked to teach three of the lessons. This was something that we were to prepare on our own based on the lessons, at least loosely, being taught to the kids. They were not interested in what I presented. I incorrectly, as it became quite clear, assumed that if these were adults that were coming during vacation Bible school nights during the week, that they would be the adults that wanted to study, dig deep, learn, and discuss. Oh, wow, was I wrong. They quite literally wanted, and I'm not joking about this, they quite literally wanted snack time, craft time, story time, just like the kids. That was not what they got from me. And it was quite obvious that they were not happy about that. 
Now, after that, I did a little bit of digging around and discovered that this church happened to be part of the very minority, very liberal sect of their denomination. I brought this information to my pastor, a little shocked and surprised he didn't know this, and told him that we cannot partner with them again. Why not? Well, because the very nature of what we were doing in VBS was to present the Bible and ultimately the gospel. They and we had a very different view of the gospel. Now, seeing as the point of VBS isn't a three-hour-per-night daycare, but, like I said, rather a vehicle to tell the kids the good news of the gospel and then leave it to the Holy Spirit to do his thing, we could not partner with a church that had very opposing and very unbiblical beliefs. Now, shifting gears, let's look at a very common example, shall we? Fighting alongside Catholics against the barbarous practice of abortion. Can we do that? Catholics and Protestants have a different view of the essentials. There's very little that we could claim unity on. Similarity, yes. Unity, eh, not really. But we absolutely should and do agree that life is sacred. And unborn life is life. Those babies are image bearers of God. And that abortion is nothing but a fancy word for murder. If the fight is against abortion, I would have no problem standing shoulder to shoulder with them. If that fight included a gospel message... I'd have to present what I believe to be the correct biblical interpretation of the message. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not of works, not of ourselves, solely through Jesus Christ. They would present a vaguely similar message with very key extra-biblical differences. Now, I would want to do something to clearly differentiate myself from them. If it was just an abortion is murder rally, because this is an image bearer of God, a precious soul, okay, no problem. Bringing this back to our topic at hand, someone who believes, incorrectly I might add, that young earth creationism is a nonsensical fantasy, someone who I'm sure believes the entire, you know, Christian thing is nothing but an ancient mythological story of some old bearded angry sky god, someone who actively promotes a dangerous, godless worldview, can I stand with him on the issue of gender? Yeah, I personally I think I can. Remember, this is me. Your conscience may tell you differently. Don't violate your conscience because some doofus on a podcast said that he'd be fine with it. We all need to make our own decisions here. But if this is a man who wanted to argue the science, the biology, absent a discussion of origins with those that are claiming such nonsense as gender dysphoria or gender transition, sex assigned at birth, 99 bottles of pronouns on the wall, yeah, I'm right there with him. If he wants to focus on origins, well, I want equal time then. And then we can come back together and we can fight the satanic ideology of LGBTQQIA2+. So what do you think? Am I way off on this? Can we only address issues that have clear roots in our belief system with others of the same belief system? Is there a place for ecumenicism or partial ecumenicism? Back to my original statement. Do you see my conflict here? Do you see how we're in the world of the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Are you with me on the fact that evolution is a very dangerous godless worldview, or actually an anti-god religion of its own, to be honest? Do you agree with me that we can stand shoulder to shoulder with an evolutionist against the psychological and physical mutilation of our children? Are you with me that in doing so, you don't really like that you're doing it, but the cause is just, the end result is right, so like it or not, we should stand together? Now, this is admittedly an area where there's very, very fine lines as to where we Christians should or could walk. As a Christian, we must let the Holy Spirit guide our steps in the realm of ecumenicism regarding areas of intersecting social, ethical, and moral causes. So although I can't tell you that you should or must work with those of conflicting beliefs, I also can't tell you that you shouldn't or mustn't. What I can tell you is to not instantly automatically dismiss a very specific partnership immediately. 
discuss this partnership, learn and study the scriptures, pray about it, and then make a decision, ensuring you're not violating your conscience, and that's the decision you were supposed to make. And above all, let's do all things for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel as our goal. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, here we are. We've made it. Almost. 2023 is nearly behind us. 2024 is nearly upon us. If you're like me, you're both happy and sad to see 2023 go, and euphoric and terrified about what 2024 might bring. If you're apathetic about one or the other, I mean, how? Anyway, as the year's wrapping up, so is season two of the Logical Christian Podcast. This will be the final episode for 2023, with the intent that we'll fire back up on Monday, January 8th for season three. Between now and then, I'll be retooling, upgrading the studios, hiring, firing, probably fighting defamation lawsuits or copyright infringement something or others, I don't know. Or I may be celebrating the birth of our Savior and ringing in the new year with family and friends. I hope and pray you're able to do the same. This segment, specifically, is goal update number 40 for the year. As an engineer that likes straight lines and square corners, it's a good feeling to finish off with a nice round number like 40. This update will be a little different than past updates, however. Let's take a look at where I ended up and where I want to go in the future in both goals and with this podcast. So, wrapping up, probably the biggest emphasis I had this year for goals was weight loss. And if you've been listening, you'll know that this goal was mission accomplished before I realized I was fighting a battle and meanwhile I lost the war. Yeah, a cycle down, followed by a cycle up. To be honest, I'm not sure exactly where I am right now. The last time I weighed myself, I was just over 200 pounds. Now, on the positive side, that's less than where I started by about 10 pounds or so. On the downside, I guarantee that after the holidays, I'll be starting over. And that's okay. I mean, just think of where I might have been if I hadn't put in the effort for a good chunk of the year, right? I mean, Dr. Now would have been banging on my door. I know you're in there. Potato is not on the diet. And I would have been screaming back, I'm trying, Dr. Now, it's water weight. I'm only eating what's on your list. Yeah, well, th this goal was a bust. But I think, or at least I, I hope, I've learned some things that I can take into 2024 and try again. We'll get to that. Now, the other three goals that I've been keeping up with, at least on this podcast, Bible reading, devotions, and book reading, well, all three of those were very successful, really. I guess if I had to choose between being pudgy and educated or thin and clueless, I'd probably choose the pudgy option. That said, surely I can be both, right? Pudgy and clueless? No, wait, no, the other... No, I meant the other two. Dagnab, but I already spoke it into existence, didn't I? <sighs> so although the weight thing is disappointing, overall, I'm happy with some habits I've picked up this year. I'm happy with the content I've read and studied. And overall, 2023, from a goal perspective, was kind of okay. Maybe, I don't know, a B or a B-. minus. How did you do? If you set up goals for 2023, have you taken a few minutes? Do it. Take a few minutes, honestly evaluate your progress and outcomes, and then of course now is the time to set up the goals for next year. Okay, 2024. 
Now, I haven't formalized my goals yet. I just really haven't had the time to do so with holiday stuff, home improvement stuff, work stuff, family stuff, etc. But I have given them some thought as to what I want to accomplish or what I want them to encompass. So obviously, weight loss needs to be back on there. I think by looking at me, you would agree weight loss needs to be back on there. This is probably the easiest one to put on there is, again, I don't plan on making any drastic dietary changes or doing some fad diet or anything like that. It's calories in versus calories out. I'm going to start with what I ended this year, some cardio on the elliptical to get the old feeble heart pumping, move into a strength training thing with the bands. Yes, I know bands are not as manly as free weights, but I'd rather have a functional lower back and I'm not going for any sort of world's strongest man, anything or whatever. So just, you know, moderate muscle building, bands are fine. I need to do a little formalization of goal numbers, but I think a weight of about 180, rather than my past goals of 170 to 175, is a more realistic target to shoot for and maintain. And the maintain part is the key. That's the part I fail on every single time. And I want to focus on coordinating fat and muscle percentage numbers as well. It appears that a body fat percentage of about 15.5 to 16 accompanied my weight of about 180. So I need to shoot for something like that, like a 15.5% body fat. According to my scale app, and why would that lie, that would put me firmly in the middle of the fitness category. I'd have to get down to 13% to be in the athlete range. And although it's very difficult to tell when you look at me, I am in actuality not a high-performing top athlete. I I know, I know. I'm as shocked as you, but but no, I'm just a computer-using, office-sitting engineer type guy. Yeah, I don't see me ever getting or wanting even to get to 13%. I also want to work in muscle percentage, however, right? So according to my scale and app, and why would they lie, it looks like no matter what I did this year, I was in the 52 to 56% range for muscle. The scale in the app says that 49 to 59% is normal, above 59% is high. I'm honestly not sure if I could get to 59% or not, just not a normal everyday whatever I do. I've never really focused on it. So I'll probably do something like a goal of 57%. Let's see if I can push past what I've historically seen. That said, my goal is really the weight and I'll just kind of have to see how the others work with that goal and adjust as needed. Moving on, I'll definitely want to keep reading books, right? For 2023, I had a goal of 3,600 pages. I read about 5,400 pages, which is the second most since I started tracking this like six years ago. So to set it at 5,400 pages, that'd be a pretty stiff goal. My goal originally for 2023 was based on 300 pages per month. My actual came out to about 450 pages per month. So I think a goal, let's say in the middle, 375 pages per month. Maybe that's a good place to camp. I don't know. That would bring my goal to 4,500 pages for the year. I'll have to think about this a little bit, but that seems at least reasonable. The key is to figure out how, and this is also going to work into the Bible reading as well, which is another goal, so let's look at that quick. For Bible reading, as you know, I've been trying to do a slower read, more in-depth type study, and I've really got two different tracks that I'm following, both based on a chronological reading. One track is roughly a Bible in, say, about two years kind of reading. It's a slower reading that allows me to do some additional study while I'm reading. The other track is very slow, like Bible in, I don't know, 20 years or 20 lifetimes. I'm not really sure. Uh, Where I'm reading all of the cross-referenced verses, 
the notes, doing some of my own digging into the original language of certain words and concepts, etc., etc. I think having a goal of reading the Bible five days out of a seven-day week is still a good goal. Now, being realistic, life is crazy. I know we're supposed to read every single day. We get instruction in church. I get instruction through various podcasts. I'm getting something every day, but actually sitting down and reading is important, but there's got to be a little bit of leeway there, at least I think. So thinking this through, rather than relying on my lunch break at work to read my Bible, which is what I have been doing, which has been kind of hit or miss, I think I'm going to move my book reading to either three or four days out of my work week. If I do more at home, on the evenings or the weekends, that's fine too. I think I want to try and do my Bible reading at home. That's the Bible in the two-year track. And I need to formalize that as well. Rather than do it kind of just loosey-goosey, I want to actually have a plan of how to finish it in two years or less. As for the in-depth reading, well, I think I'll try to do that, I don't know, one to two days per week at work, but also one to two days at home. I need to figure this out exactly. I really haven't figured it out. I just know that I need to kind of formalize this stuff, obviously, right? I mean, this is going to take some experimentation too. I, I really don't expect that whatever I come up with now to be what I'm ending at at the end of the year, but we'll see. Now, along with this, I'm really kind of reevaluating my sleep habits and this all plays into it. Okay. The reality is I stay up way too late and that's where all the temptations set in. For example, I found that about 11 o'clock, I tend to get a bit snackish, shall we say. Staying up too late also causes me to be sluggish getting up in the morning, although I get up and I function just fine, but I get really tired in the early evening. My ambition is less, etc., etc. I've also heard that sleep plays a major role in weight loss. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. This really isn't a goal. Um, it's going to, again, take some experimentation, but I think that this plays into all of my other goals being accomplished. So, I want to try to get to bed by 11 o'clock. That's lights out. So everything done, turned off, prayer said, head on the pillow, CPC time. If I can do that, I may be able to get up a little earlier in the morning and do my Bible reading then. My problem with doing that in the past is that I've basically just shortchanged my sleep. So I'm just exhausted. I can't focus or anything. So I'm thinking maybe go to bed at 11, get up at 5, do 30 minutes of focused reading, get ready for work, etc., etc., now, this won't be easy, as I really like to stay up late, but really think doing a little shuffling of my schedule will be better in the long run. Now, I'm not going to throw devotions in as a specific goal for 2024, although I am going to continue doing those. A few other long-term goals that I'd kind of like to work in. I, I, I think I'll make them formal goals, but again, I have to look at how much time I've got to do everything. I think I'd like to learn Greek. And for now, I think I'll try to do that with the free version of Duolingo. This isn't going to make me a scholar, but it's a good place to start. This will be like 10 to 15 minutes per day. Good way to spend a little time that I'd normally be doing just, I don't know, pointless nothing on my phone. And maybe I can start to understand some of the original Greek that the New Testament was written in a little bit better, which is really important to studying the Bible deeper. Right now, I'm using various tools and applying my logic the best I can, but I guarantee I'm missing things or getting some things wrong because I don't understand the construction of the original language. So that goal will be kind of managed inside the app, right? The streak of days or whatever, accessing the app or whatever. I don't know. I also mentioned this at the beginning of, of this year, 2023, but I never went anywhere with it. One of my favorite books of the Bible is Romans. I'd like to memorize Romans. I think I can get that done by June. And no, I'm not going to specify the year. Just, just June. 
seriously though, I started this at one time and I got through most of chapters one through three and then I lost focus. So this type of thing, this takes time. Uh, Romans is made up of 16 chapters, 433 verses. That's an average of 27 verses per chapter. I think a realistic and probably a, well, really kind of a weak goal would be a, a chapter a quarter, which would make it four years for me to memorize the entire book. Now, honestly, I think I could do it much faster than that, but my brain is old and it's clogged with a lot of fats and cholesterols. And as more and more is added to the memorization, I just feel like it's going to get harder and harder. So, at an average of 27 verses per chapter, that means memorizing an additional verse every three days. Now, I fully admit that this goal is as precarious as my weight loss goal. I need to do some more work on finalizing that, but I kind of like to try this. And finally, at least for now, I also want to try to improve my consistency in prayer. I find it funny that all of us say the same thing. Oh, I'll pray for you. We say it all the time. All of us will make claims that we pray regularly, but when asked if we can remember the last time we formally spent time in prayer, and we're not counting in church, not counting saying the, you know, the blessing, the blessing at dinner time, we're talking actual focused prayer. Well, it's, it's always been a while for just about everybody. Well, it's been a while. And we all know that this is probably the biggest area of struggle for most Christians because every poll taken since I think polls began, you know, millions of years ago, it says that we all believe prayer is important but it's the biggest struggle most of us have. Now, we're supposed to pray for family and friends and those in power. We should be praying for our country, those at church, our church in general, our workplace, our co-workers, and on and on and on. And I happen to like using the ACTS method, A-C-T-S, ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, if I remember that correctly. I think that's a great method of prayer. But trying to pray for all things every time well, it seems very repetitious, very time-consuming, and let's be honest, that would lead people, like me, to be more apt to miss days as, uh, I just don't have time for that tonight. So, I've done some pre-work already, divvying up these various categories with the intent that there are things I'll pray for every day, but other things I'll designate to a day of the week, and I'll rotate those categories around. I still need to formalize how I want to do that and track it. Okay. Those are goals, or at least basic outlines of goals. I plan to use some time over the next few weeks to formalize these, to set up how I want to track them. Of course, that will most likely involve Excel because that's what I do. All right, goals in general. Although I didn't state it specifically here, you could go back to episode 88, where I explain my basic process of goal setting, if you're interested in some sort of a method. At this point, I'll probably do that exercise loosely for 2024, but I don't know that I'll spend a massive amount of time to do a systematic process of formalizing the goals in that way. But just FYI, essentially, I like to apply three different systems for setting goals. The SMART goal system tells us how to set our goals, that being an acronym for specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-sensitive. Then I like to look at the areas that Dave Ramsey recommends, which gives us a good list of what areas which to make goals, finances, spirituality, fitness, education, family, career, and social. And finally, we shouldn't do anything without a why, which I think should, as much as possible, tie back to the increase of our fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you've got your how, and you've got your what, and you've got your why, and you can mash most of those together, I think you're going to have some good goals. So, you got a couple weeks left. If you haven't started setting goals... And we're not talking New Year's resolutions, we're talking goals. Start now. 
Now, you don't have to, nor do you want to set too many goals. Typically, three to seven are about all you really want. Less than that, it's usually typically not pushing yourself that much. More than that is probably setting yourself up for some big failure. All right, finally, this podcast going forward. I don't foresee a lot of format changes. We'll just continue looking at various stuff that's out there in the news, some that's more widely distributed, some that's not. I'll continue to do this in a long-form type of format. I don't plan on doing a goal update weekly. I think I'll shoot for, I don't know, maybe monthly and just kind of see how that goes. I don't know if you were getting much out of the observations and questions I noted during my Bible reading, but I think I'll continue to do that, but maybe as a, like a little separate mini-segment, maybe weekly or semi-monthly. If I did it semi-monthly, I could do goal updates on a week where I don't have a Bible question observation segment. I'll have to come up with some name for that segment in order to keep podcast time. I mean, reasonable is a relative term at this point, but you get what I'm saying. I've also got some other ideas for podcast series like we did with the Communist Goals for America or the founding documents in Congress Assembled. I'll think about it and I'll try to think about when or if I'm going to mix these ideas in. More on that later. I guess maybe. All right, last thing. For those of you that have spent your precious time with me as I've wandered around my mind and the internet tackling a wide variety of issues, some mainstream, some that you've undoubtedly wondered where in the world I found that, thank you. We're not quite at Joe Rogan levels, but in the last six months, looking at the average listener data, the number of downloads has increased by about 50% per week. Making a podcast is hard, doing the research is time-consuming, but for me, most of the time, it's cathartic. With approximately infinity podcasts to choose from, with approximately infinity of them being better than this thing, I appreciate each and every one of you that finds value or amusement or an increased sense of self-worth, knowing that at least you're not that guy, whatever. I also appreciate any of you that have recommended this podcast to others. I don't need to know if that was because you said, hey, I just found this really interesting podcast that you should listen to, or if it was more like, you know what a horrible train wreck looks like? Well, I found a podcast that's basically the verbal equivalent. You need to check out this disaster. Look, I, I just I just see the numbers of downloads, how or why those happen. I mean, that's that's totally up to you all. So with that, let me say thank you again. Wish you all a safe, enjoyable, Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. Don't get lost in the commercialization. Keep Christ at the center of this holiday season, as we should be doing all year long. And that's 2023 in the archives. I'll see you all in 2024. God bless.